0: Hello everyone, this is Lisa Fields, the founder and president of the Jude 3 Project. And I just want to take this time to personally thank all of our monthly supporters. We could not do what we do without giving from people like you. I greatly, greatly appreciate it. And if you're not a monthly supporter and you would like to become one, you can go to jude3project.org and hit the donate tab and sign up. We are grateful for you and we hope you enjoy today's new episode. God bless. Hello, welcome to the Jew3 Project podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jew3 Project. Well, we're live. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the G3 Project podcast. This is a special live episode that I'm so excited called uh, Not Another Hashtag, um, a a strategy for progress. I almost forgot the subtitle there. I'm Lisa Fields, your host of the G3 Project. Uh, Before we get started, make sure you tag a friend, um, you share your timeline, you put in the comments where you're watching from. And also, if you're watching from Facebook, create a Facebook watch party um, so we can spread the word. Um, I believe this is a going to be a necessary conversation and a helpful conversation. Um, so make sure you do that. Tag a friend, share your timeline and also. We want you to definitely make sure uh, you create a Facebook watch party if you're watching from Facebook um, and put in the comments where you're watching from. We always like to see uh, where the different people are tuning in from. We're so excited that you're joining us for this event tonight. We have two um, amazing guests along with the, with me tonight. Um, Justin Gibney and Vanicure. Welcome. Thank
1: you. Thank you for having us, Lisa.
2: How's it going, Lisa? Glad to be here.
0: It's good to be here uh, with you all. Um, Before we get started, uh, just tell our audience a little bit about who you are and your experience on on this topic. We'll start with you, Vanna.
1: Great. So um, as Lisa said, my name is Vanna Cure. I have, I guess my experience has been in organizing. Um, I have some policy experience. I currently work as the senior advocacy manager for an organization called Prosperity Now, which is located in Washington, D.C., Um, We do a lot of asset building work, a lot of work on uh, the racial wealth divide. Um, And prior to that, I uh, worked for the Democratic National Committee for a couple years. And before that, worked on uh, various uh, both uh, candidate as well as issue campaigns and then had some policy experience working on Capitol Hill here in D.C., uh, but with that, I did want to make it clear that uh, I am joining today's discussion uh, in my own capacity. I'm not joining on behalf of Prosperity Now, so I just wanted to make that clear before we get started. But nonetheless, very excited to join uh, this conversation tonight, this very important conversation. Awesome. Awesome. What about you, Justin?
2: Well, first, Lisa, thank you so much for for having me on. You know, I'm one of uh, Jude 3's biggest fans, and so I'm always happy to, to contribute when I can. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm an attorney by trade. Uh, I also have been doing a political strategy for over a decade. So I have run uh, campaigns local and state. I've also run uh, campaigns for uh, referendums uh, for uh, transportation and water infrastructure. So, for instance, the last one I ran here in Atlanta, I think it was in a few years back, was uh, to pass a, uh, a referendum to raise money for Atlanta's transportation system to the I think to the tune of about uh, two point five billion dollars. Uh, and so I have experience doing that, uh, became the uh, president, founder and president of the And Campaign, which is a Christian civic organization. Uh, I've also been a uh, two time delegate at the Democratic National Convention in 2012 and 2016. Uh, and so you ha- had a lot of experience in politics, policy, writing legislation uh, when I worked for the city of Atlanta, uh, and which all kind of ties into an understanding of uh, legislation, organizing and uh, policy.
0: Awesome. Thank you. Thank you both for joining us. Um, when we think about this topic, not another hashtag, the reason we're here um, is because we're constantly black and brown bodies are constantly hashtags. Um, because uh we've been murdered by police or white supremacists in the case of Amal Aubrey. Um, and uh we, we also want to take a moment just to, to mention the recent names that we've we've heard, George Floyd, uh, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, that are kind of the reason why we're in this current moment um, of protest. And there are many people who say, man, protest doesn't do anything. I think you would be crazy to even think that now, just by the recent events that have transpired. Um, but um, what, for people who think protests aren't effective, What kind of um, advice would you give them or what kind of uh, what would you say to them? Uh,
1: Starting with you, Vanna. Uh, I think I would just say, you know, people have to understand the reason for protesting. You know, protesting isn't intended to be the end all be all to solve a problem. Protesting um, is a a means to raise awareness to an issue. And in this case, a very important issue that we see uh, police brutality. Um, And for folks who say that protesting doesn't work already this week, we've already started to see some reform in different cities. You know, the mayor of LA has agreed to um, transfer $150 million from the police force to communities of color. Um, He has yet to say what that allocation is actually going to do in communities of color, but that's a great start. You know, um, already, the city of Minneapolis—they just released um, additional reforms to their police force. Uh, I think they are now requiring police to intervene when uh, there's excessive force being used, which is crazy when you think about it. That that wasn't previously a requirement for for other officers on the scene to reform. But again, it just just that quickly by people taking to the streets, raising their voices, holding signs—you know—really um, rallying behind an issue. We we see change, and then you know, outside of policy change and local reform, even the officers being arrested, you know, four days later, the other officers just recently, almost a week later. Um, so so for folks who, you know, say protesting doesn't work, I understand if it's not your thing, but it definitely serve, serves its purpose and that's raising awareness to what's happening. Mm-hmm. Justin.
2: Yeah, uh, well, I, I agree. I mean, certainly some forms of protest are more effective than others. But for someone who tells me that protests don't work, I would just ask them to read history. I mean, throughout history, um, whether it's the Tea Party, uh, whether it's the civil rights movement, we see over and over again how protests can be very much effective. And I think one of the reasons that protests is necessary and can be effective effective is because when when there's injustice or just general unrighteousness, uh, it needs to be shaken up. Right. It, It needs to be disrupted. And I think what protests do is that they are disruptive. And disruption isn't necessarily something that's negative. I mean, I, we, you know, we can talk Bible a little bit. If you look in the Bible, uh, the Bible does not t- treat disruption as if it's always negative or as if it's uh, not productive and, and, and helpful. I mean, when you when you see in Amos, when uh, he talks about uh, justice and righteousness uh, rolling down, running down like a, a mighty stream, that's disruption. I mean, whatever it's rolling down on is not going to be the same thereafter because some things need to change. And we even see situations where God is mad at Israel and other folks because they're not being disrupted because they're not intervening on behalf of justice. And so uh, that, you know, from a biblical, biblical standpoint, uh, from a historical standpoint, that is real. Even when we hear about the roaring of uh, the line of Judah and things of that nature, that's a disruption. That's wake That's putting things on alert and waking things out of their slumber and putting everybody on alert that things need to change. So disruption, a disruption when, something is broken or when uh, society needs to change has, has always been effective if done if done properly. And I think we'll kind of get into what that means uh, later on, but to say that it's not uh, effective is just ahistorical.
0: Mm-hmm. And we've seen what process protesting can do. Like you both said this past few weeks, and that is helpful. Um, many people though, stop with protests and I like to say justice is a commitment. Um, it is a commitment for the long call, and that uh, long call is something we often uh, don't consider uh, because, like, when it's trending, we're all excited about it. But the long call, the commitment for justice is what we don't often get excited about. And we once it's not trending anymore, we forget about it. Um, what does it mo- mean to develop a strategy past just protesting? Um, either one of you could go first.
2: Yeah, I guess I can jump in if you don't mind. I think one of the things about advocacy in general is that it's going to take devotion and it's going to take endurance. And one of the things I kind of want to push people away from that we've seen more and more uh, today is the kind of performative activism. Right. Where it's kind of more about self-expression and more about putting on for our ideological tribe. But it doesn't have any clearly defined or thoughtful policy outcomes. Right. This is why we can have so many kind of social media advocate uh, activists who can say stuff on social media and and talk a good game, but haven't really done that much, but feel like they've done, you know, they've done a whole lot. Um, And so I think it's very important. I want to make this historical point that it's very important to understand that that performative posture is outside of the black church social action tradition. Right. Performative activism is really more of a kind of white liberal tradition. Uh, Black activism tended to be more focused on tangible and practical policy outcomes. Because honestly, Lisa, we didn't have the luxury of centering our public witness on individual expression. Uh, It wasn't about some culture war. It was about uh, how we face life, uh, how we face life or death situations. Uh, So I think it's unfortunate if we kind of start leaning to this more performative way of doing activism, because as you said, It's just not long lasting. And you say what you have to say, you kind of get it out and then you move on to the next hashtag. Well, that's just that's just not sound. That's not going to lead to to change because it's not sustained. And activism has to be sustained. It has to come from strategy. Uh, And that's one of the things that that's missing. You know, the the picture of uh, civil rights activists strategizing in churches was a practical necessity at necessity at the time. Um, But I think it also has very deep and powerful symbolism because it speaks to the thoughtfulness and the planning that has to go into social action. Um, But it also speaks, I think, to, you know, them being in the church speaks to the foundation, which is the rock and the framework, which is the worldview of the movement. Uh, And so let's not be fooled. Those were Christian movements and they were applying biblical principles to the oppressive situation. But they had to sit down and plan and they had to be devoted to what they were doing. And we oftentimes just don't see that de- devotion when it's more performative, again, when it's more putting on for our tribe instead of having specific policy outcomes that we are looking for. And traditionally African-American activism didn't just just didn't have time for that. And I would hope we would kind of go back to that tradition rather than leaning on the more uh, uh, performative side of things.
1: Mm-hmm. Vanna, what would you like to add to that? Yeah, that's well said. And I was going to say, if I would, would add anything here, I would say even encourage us to just take a step back. Um, and when we talk about, you know, next steps in organizing and just taking a step back and um, really allowing folks who have expressed their empathy for what's happening right now to, to, to have some space to gain more understanding of what's happening right now. Of course, George Floor was Floyd was the catalyst for what's happening right now. But this is a larger issue of systemic racism, uh, white supremacy, that you know, the police brutality and police violence is really the tip of the iceberg. Um, so I would just encourage people from here, first things first, is to gain a deeper understanding of what folks mean when we talk about systemic racism and white supremacy. Um, there are an abundance of resources out there, a number of books, a number of movies and podcasts that really talk about the issue. Um, in a deep and meaningful way, data, research. Um, so I would just encourage people to take a step back. That way folks can go from uh, just generally being empathetic to uh, becoming an ally and a and an activist for reform, because that's going to be the next step, is actually going from, um, you know, marching in the streets to pushing for reform. So that's the only thing that I would add is just taking a step back. And uh, for folks who do that, tend to do that performative um performative things on social media. A lot of that is coming from a place of ignorance, a, a place of people wanting to support, but just not really understanding and not having the words to to put to paper uh, in a way that makes sense to other folks. So, uh, for, and just encouraging people to do the research. There's a number of books out there I posted on social media that I would recommend, How to Be an Anti-Racist, Just, Mer- just Mercy, uh, Michelle Alexander's books. There's a number of, um, of great books to read to get a, a better understanding. Um, and then from there, When we talk about tangible next steps, um, I think, you know, obviously civic engagement is one, but I think folks feel so overwhelmed when we talk about civic engagement and getting involved with policy and organizing because they think they have to start from square one. Um, There's a number of organizations doing this work, and I'm sure um, Justin will talk about his organization shortly. But, you know, like these organizations on social media, share their posts, amplify their work, um, get involved in their calls to action. Uh, Join local coalitions in your hometown who are doing this work. You don't have to feel like you're starting from square one, uh, but just going from protesting to joining these existing efforts, I think is helpful and getting data that's out there that speaks to some of the discrepancies in your community, that speaks to the police violence that's happening in your community, Uh, but just seeking out resources that are already there to help you gain a better understanding. Mm -hmm.
0: That is extremely helpful. One of the things that I think people are not often aware of is what elections matter when we're talking about criminal justice reform. So there's a lot of energy usually around the presidential election um, and sometimes the governor election. But when it comes to local elections outside of the mayor, um, there's not not even a lot of attendance um, all the time for the presidential election. So as we trickle down to state elections, to state reps, um, to your local officials, there's not a lot of participation. So pe- sometimes people think just changing the president will fix it. Um, can you talk about kind of what elections matter when we think about um, our criminal justice reform? Any
1: Either one of you could go first. Yeah, and I'll, and I'll defer to you, uh, Justin, to start. But I do want to mention one thing that when we talk about voting in elections, I was really bothered this week. I was watching a number of protests um, on social media and just keeping up with what's happening around the country. And I was watching one protest in particular, um, and a woman grabbed the mic and, um, you know, was very passionate about the cause and her beliefs. And, you know, she's talked about, you know, people say that the next step from here is we need to go register to vote and vote. And she says, well, voting is just the bandaid, but we need surgery. And I was just so taken aback by that statement um, because it really stung. It really, was just another reminder of just how jaded people are by the electoral process, by our political system, um, and you know how people are just turned off from from voting and being involved. And I would encourage people as we think about the elections that are coming up in November and think about elections from here on out to look at voting not as the band aid, but as you know, selecting your doctor if you need to have surgery. You know, so often we uh, sit back and allow our doctors to be chosen for us, and those doctors in turn you know, don't even believe you're in pain, let alone think that you need surgery. So I I would just encourage people to totally look um, at voting as not the end-all be-all for civic engagement, but really just the first step in a process to to getting that surgery, to consulting with your doctor and making sure they understand exactly what's wrong um, and moving forward then. So uh, that's something I, I failed to mention when we talked about tangible next steps, is just making sure people are, you know, educated on who's running, um, and are registered to vote as, as we look forward to the primaries in some states, but uh, the November elections as well. Um, and Justin, I'm, I'll, I'll turn it back over to you to talk about sort of how, um, who we need to look out for what elections we need to look out for. And I'll piggyback off of that.
2: No, great. That, that's, that's good. I think you hit a good, great point, Vanna, uh, which is that voting, we cannot uh, under, you know, uh, uh, downplay how much vote, how important voting is. Uh, as, as you said, voting is, the end of a process is, is kind of the beginning of a process, but the end of a process as well. And so what I try to tell people is don't think we, you know, a lot of times we get to election day and we say, man, we, we don't like any of the choices. Well, that's because in one sense it's the end of the process and you would like to get there. You would like to get to it at the beginning of the process so that you can have a say on who the candidates are, what the agendas are, the platforms and all those things. But to the other point, it's the it's the beginning of a process in that when somebody gets in office, don't give up just because it's not your person. Uh, one thing I know about politicians and I have a lot of friends and mentors who are politicians is that they want to stay in office. And if you put pressure on them, their whole agenda could change for better or worse. Uh, so don't give up just because your person didn't get in or you didn't think they were the perfect candidate. That's the beginning of another process of holding them accountable. But again, try to get in front of the the voting process and have more of a say who on who you're voting for, too. Uh, and And. Uh, And to go into like when we're talking about, I guess we can say criminal justice elections to kind of apply it to what we're talking about today. When you talk to most people, if you ask them who their sheriff was, uh, who their uh, district attorney was, uh, who their solicitor, I know we have solicitors in Atlanta, in uh, Georgia, who their solicitor was, they wouldn't know. Uh, And that's really an important place to start. You have to know who you're who who are the people in these very important situations, because we're going to talk about changing laws. And changing laws is very important, but each of the each of the people as who's a each of of the candidates who are running for sheriff, who are running for a a district attorney or some other position, they're always going to have a level of discretion, regardless of of what the law says. Somewhere there's going to be a level of discretion, and that's where their character, that's where their values and other things come into play. So we need to know who these people are, and we need to be holding them accountable the whole time. And if we don't know who they are, it means that we're missing a huge part of the process that comes uh, after the vote. Uh, and we need to make sure that we're, we're in tune there. So I would just say, absolutely, uh, we have to engage in these criminal justice elections. Uh, we have to make sure that when somebody's running for judge, do you know how important that position is? We need to know who they are and we need to be uh, engaged. One of the things that churches can do and faith organizations can do is come together and, throw, and, and uh, host town halls, host panels where the people get to ask these folks questions hear about what their plans are and what they uh, what they want to do, and give them input. Uh, they may not have all the answers, and I think we do not need to have some grace for that. So when I say hold them accountable, it doesn't mean uh, not be gracious at all, but it does mean that you are questioning them and they know that you're going to show up consistently. And that's, again, where we get to this consistent, this endurance and this devotion to really changing the system. Because too many times when we have these conversations, I can just feel that, People are looking for us to say, if you do this tomorrow and maybe the next day, then everything will change. Uh-huh. Have a sense of urgency. Feel like you want everything to change today. That's what I feel. But understand that it doesn't always happen that way. So you're going to have to have that endurance uh, to, to really have a lasting impact.
1: Absolutely. Um, great points. I don't really have anything to add. I was just thinking in terms of like town hall meetings and getting elected officials to come and talk to the community. Just as important as it is for you to hear what these folks stand for, it's also an opportunity for you all as a coalition or pastors or a church to insert your your agenda into uh, what these candidates are uh, going around and what's on their platform. It's a chance for you to get some of your ideas and some of your policy um, thoughts inserted into their platform. I had something else I was gonna mention that I um, oh, I know you mentioned sheriff, um, solicitor, Justin. I would add on top of that, mayors. Like I said before, um, you know, local elections in general just don't tend to have near the same turnout as presidential elections. But those are critically important, as we see issues of police violence coming up. Those issues, you know, police reform or police sort of enforcement is is within the jurisdiction of the mayor uh, and of city council. So those uh, local elections, if you've got them coming up in your city. Um, in your hometown, you know, definitely get to the polls and and vote for those people. Um, I do want to also mention just where to find information. I think a lot of times we'll talk about, you know, go vote for locally and go do this and that. And people don't always know where to find this information. Um, Ballotpedia is a good place. Um, I direct people there. I don't know if uh, votesmart.org is still a thing, but I used to use that a lot. Um, So either one of those websites, I think you can put in your address, they'll show you everybody that's on the ballot, uh, either for this primary that's coming up this summer or for the November election. So just a good way to get a a pretty comprehensive list of who's going to be on the ballot. You can click on their picture, their name, and it'll show you uh, everything from who their donors are to what their platform is. So definitely take some time to look into who these people are um, and and make an informed and educated decision. Mm -hmm. Um, can, you,
0: can either one of you give a little bit more details on um, federal legislation as it relates to criminal justice versus state level? Um, kind of just dig a little bit deeper into that, either one of you.
2: Well, I can talk about it a little bit. You know, I, I mostly work on the local and, and state level. But I'll tell you this, when you're talking about criminal justice, we spend a whole lot of time talking about federal stuff. And you have the First Step Act and hopefully there'll be something that comes after that. Uh, but the truth of the matter is when it comes to uh, mass incarceration, most people who are incarcerated are incarcerated in state prisons.
1: Mm-hmm. And so if we're
2: putting all our energy and only paying attention to what's going on on a national level. We actually miss something that's a lot closer, into, closer to us and that we may even have more a better chance of impacting. Uh, and so, you know, on a state level and it depends. And here's the other thing. You know, when we kind of make statements online and when, and, and kind of the narratives that come from our favorite commentators are very general. But the truth of the matter is criminal justice from state to state is very different. Policing from state to state is very different. And so you need to kind of know what's going on in your state. you got to pay attention. I mean, sometimes it's says uh, you can go to the website of uh, your state government and just look at the committee that handles uh, policing or look at the committee that handles criminal justice. Look at the committees in your city council or your uh, um, county commission that are handling criminal justice issues and just see what's on the agenda. Uh, read the paper, <laughs> right? Read your local news. I, I get caught up in that sometimes, where I'm reading so so caught up in reading national news that I, I need to sit back and read local news to see what's happening. Because we say, you know, wh- how do we find this out? But some of those sources are very close to us, and we need to be supporting those reporters and sources to get more information. So, so just understand that when it comes to criminal law, a lot of the work that needs to be done is on a state and local level because that's where the most of the people are, are, are in jails. One of the things that we talk about on those levels well, as well is the discretion that prosecutors have. One of the issues that people can look into is where should we be kind of uh, eroding some of the, uh, the dis- discretion that some prosecutors have. These are issues that I think in a lot of cases are, are, need to be focused on on a local and state level, but we always don't, don't look there even though there is still work to be done, don't get me wrong on a, on a federal level as well. Mm -hmm.
1: Vanna, do you want to add anything? Yeah, I would just, um, in terms of federal, I know Justin mentioned that the first step act and just these larger policies that are intended to address, to address federal prisons are um, a lot of what you're going to see on the federal level. But in response to the protests that's been happening, I know that there's been a couple bills that have been introduced in Congress. I would imagine they're mostly messaging bills in that, um, you know, I don't, anticipate them certainly passing this Congress, but just to get the general messaging out there in Congress, I know one of the first ones was a qualified immunity bill that was intended to um, to overturn qualified immunity, which is um, basically this shield that police officers have that doesn't allow you know individuals to sue them in the event of police brutality. So it's just a major roadblock for people getting justice. and uh, this the bill was introduced, I believe earlier this week. Um, But to Justin's point, most of what needs to happen in terms of criminal justice reform is going to have to happen on the local level, uh, either the state or uh, either at the state legislature or uh, at city hall with mayors and city council.
0: That's extremely, extremely helpful. Um, That kind of motivates us, I think, to pay attention to our our state and local elections um, and put the same energy we would into our our presidential elections into those if we want to get um, when we want to see criminal justice reform. Um, when we think about um, community organizing, I know that's important. There's a lot of grassroots efforts that have to take place in order for things to change. What are some key things that you would um, um, instruct our audience with, and in, in, in as it relates to community organizing?
2: Yeah, I would say one of the first things that we have to do in community organizing is be aware. Right. We have to know the issues and we have to uh, understand the process, uh, because I'm sure Vanna can tell you a a lot of time can be wasted by folks who have the best of intentions, but haven't really understood the process. And so that we we're just really spinning our wheels. And that can be a a tough situation to be in. So I, I would say that. But I say usually when I go into a conversation and I'm trying to organize the community around an issue, Sometimes once, you know, once I understand the issue and understand the process, sometimes it starts with a narrative. Right. And really helping under people understand a narrative, the storyline of why something is important, how it came, came to be and why it needs to change. And I think sometimes, you know, we, we don't focus on that storyline enough. Now, I think especially as Christians, we need to make sure that storyline and that narrative is accurate. Uh, because there are all kinds of storylines that are just false narratives. And so I'm not saying just make up whatever story works for you, but think about it and process it long enough to be able to explain it to people in a way that creates a narrative and uh, an understanding, a kind of a picture in their head of why this why something needs to be done, because that's really what 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 gets people to want to act and really want to move on an issue when there is a storyline that connects to their story, that connects to the people that are around them. And I think as an organizer, getting those kind of talking points and getting that storyline right and, again, accurate will really help you in making sure that you're reaching people. And then a big part of organizing, too, is, is just going to be listening to people, listening to people who are in the situation and what they've got going on. You know, for me, I've been in Atlanta for a good amount of time, but I don't do anything without going to the elders. I don't do anything without having, without having a conversation with folks who have been there for a long time. I have, you know, council members who mentored me, all type of folks. And before I sit down with them, I, I don't, I don't really move because I, number one, I think I owe it to hear them out. And two, they have so much kind of institutional knowledge that it's going to help me even better understand what's going on. So I would, I would, two things I would point out is just the storyline, making sure that you're aware of the issues and make sure that you're connecting and listening to people before you move forward. Um, because you could waste a lot of time if you don't have those things in place. <laughs>
1: Vanna, Yeah, I would agree with both of those things. Um, I think uh, two things that I would add to those is um, first and foremost, just figuring out what exactly it is that you want to change. Uh, I think particularly in today's climate um, with so much energy around police reform, you know, if you ask people out on the front lines. What they want to do different, or why they're protesting, they're probably going to say police reform. Well, what does that mean? I think we've got to get specific about what it is that we're trying to solve for. You know, do you want uh, your city council, your mayor, to ban chokeholds? Do you want, you know, less funding for police officers? But really rallying around a common cause that isn't so broad and something that you can move um, um, from a, a legislative perspective. So that's first thing figuring out what it is exactly that you want. And two, who you need to influence to, to make that change happen. You know, is it going to be something that you push, um, uh, with your federal legislators, uh, your mayor, your, your state legislators, figuring out sort of a path to victory there. Um, and then I think the second thing that I would, um, would emphasize in terms of organizing is what a win looks like for you. Um, I think a lot of times people, um, get discouraged because the goal um, is often to get a bill passed. Um, You know, this big, we want to get something signed by the governor, we want to get something signed by the president, um, and not necessarily taking those incremental wins of getting a bill introduced, or getting a bill moved in Congress, or getting legislators talking about your issue on the House floor, or city council members talking about your issue in their city council meetings. Uh, But just really figuring out what it is um, and setting realistic goals. Um, I mentioned earlier the the qualified immunity bill, that being a messaging bill. You know, I'm sure um, the senator from Michigan hen- who introduced it introduced it with the idea that uh, to get that messaging spread throughout Congress, just generally getting that bill introduced, um, that's not a loss; um, it's a win, and it very much is a step and a step in the process in terms of organizing. Um, and another thing that I'll add as well. Um, you know, in terms of organizing, it's just figuring out what exactly that looks like. I think uh, one of the problems now when we have so much energy in the air is that people want to get involved, but they don't know what it looks like. And we say all the time, organize and go talk to your members of Congress and do this and this, do that. But people don't actually know what that looks like in a real tangible way. But figuring out, you know, what you can do to help, um, you know, if you're an organizer, doing an email campaign and getting people in the community involved, sending out, you know, emails or Facebook messages, getting people to um, to email their elected officials, providing them an email script, um, having them call. Is it, to Justin's point earlier, inviting legislators out to a town hall meeting? Is it you gathering a group of folks in the community to go to a city council meeting so you all can chime in on a bill that you're trying to push? But just figuring out what it looks like, uh, you know, anytime you're organizing, people are going to want to be involved at different levels in the process. Maybe some people will be more passive advocates where they'll only want to sign a petition or sign a letter that you've got going around, whereas other people will want to go and testify before, um, before a state legislature or city council. But just figuring out uh, how it is that you're going to go about making change. I know it can seem so broad, but it's always a good idea to figure these things out um, as you're going and make sure you're just not aimlessly seeking out this very broad goal.
2: Well, Lisa, if I can, I would add one more thing. I think, I think Vanna's right on that. I would add, and, and, and I think we touched on it, Vanna touched on it earlier, you don't have to recreate the wheel every time an issue comes up. There are, there are usually organizations that have been doing this for a long time. And so I would, I would add that we should usually act through institutions. Uh, advocacy, as we said before, takes devotion and endurance, and those things are best cultivated through institutions. And our age is a very is, is kind of very irreverent sometimes towards institutions and leadership. Um, and I don't think that's just you know I'm not I'm not going to say that's just millennials. I think that's everybody. I don't think that started with millennials or the generation after that. Uh, everyone seems sees themselves kind of as outsiders. Uh, when we talk about institutions, we say they or them. Uh, We rarely say we or us, and we even see this in churches, right? Uh, Most pastors will be able to tell you this, that we don't necessarily try to improve institutions anymore when we have a problem. We may say there's a problem. If they don't do what we want to do, then we kind of take our ball and go home because we don't have that same kind of ownership. And this is partially because to be honest, so many leaders and institutions have failed to represent what they said that they were in the church and outside, but we shouldn't take that. We shouldn't take that and let it lead us to conclude that leadership and institutions are generally bad. Um, We should should act collectively through institutions. And uh, a major part of advocacy is organizing and institutions provide the infrastructure and resources to organize efficiently and effectively. We know that there's strength in numbers and so they give us a consistent set of values and consistent guidelines. Um, Institutions are best for sustained action because institutions are still working when you don't have the time to work, right? Uh Uh, They're still, they're doing the due diligence and research that you may not have time to do. Uh, They're focused on the issue um, when you may be preoccupied, right? And then it also, and then the people that you want to make the changes, the the, uh, elected officials and people of that nature, they know who they're responding to when you're doing it through an institution. So it's not to say that individuals can't do something, but rarely do you have to recreate the wheel I think there's a consistency, and it's easier easier to hold people accountable when that is done through an institution. So I, I I really hope that we start to see the value in institutions again, when leaders start acting within institutions as they should.
0: That's that's helpful. Um, as I was listening to both of y'all, I remember um, there was an uh, issue in the city around um, schools, and one of the teachers asked me to come to one of the school board meetings, and I was shocked as to how little, how uh, small the attendance was for such oh, big things that were up for a passing. And it it made me think about like looking at meetings um, with city council and major decisions are being made, and we have the ability to be present, um, but we don't often go to those meetings. Some will argue because they don't have time. Um, It doesn't seem like it's a big deal until it impacts them. Um, How have you seen people not take advantage of um, the, the process
1: and the access that we do have? I mean, I just I think at the end of the day, um, you know, we've got to get back to a place where policies are people informed and they are really informed by the voice of the constituents. And to your point about going to a city council meeting and it being underrepresented, I think you can see that all across the country. And I hope that this movement that we see right now of protesting will, you know, this energy and, you know, with people being galvanized, that this will really translate into, you know, people being more active politically, people um, taking their civic engagement more seriously. Um, but I, it reminds me of a situation that I had in organizing, um, when I was doing some campaign work, um, one city in particular that I was working with, they were trying to pass, um, you know, housing reform, a big housing reform, local ordinance where, you know, it was going to, um, it was designed to curb predatory, um, predatory, like renter, um, predatory behavior of landlords, excuse me, um, providing like rental assistance, a really huge um, local housing, ordinate, housing ordinance that was intended to address um, housing affordability. Um, we talked to members of um, the city, I uh, got some feedback from them. And one of the issues that they very br- bluntly told us was that um, landlords are overrepresented at their city council member, at their city council meetings. Uh, you know, folks on that side of things who were really pushing against this housing ordinance was there, but they just didn't have enough stories from local renters and local constituents to really push for this bill to go through. And just something as simple as that, when you got legislators who are really championing an issue but don't have the voice of the constituent there, it just makes it harder to really... Um, you know, to really make the case for passing legislation. So it's just critically important. I understand that time is an issue. People have families, people work, uh, particularly folks in low-income communities don't necessarily have transportation. Uh, but I think that goes back to the power of organizing and that when uh, when you're raising a community voice, when you have a coalition where there's more than one person, uh, where there's dozens of people where one person can't go, you know, five others can go. So I think that's just the, the, the power of organizing and, and raising and sounding a collective voice. Um, outside of that, you know, calling is still very effective. Writing is still very effective. You can find these folks' um, their contact information online. So just any any way to get engaged is helpful. I think I mentioned it earlier, you know, organizers drafting a letter um, of of demands to, to city council or the mayor going around your community and getting signatures on that letter, just any way that you can make it as light of a lift as possible to get people engaged, I think is going to be extremely helpful. But like I said, at the end of the day, we just got to get back to constituent informed policies. I think we've been um, apathetic for too long and have, you know, have not really gotten back to a place of organizing and it's time. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Justin, you want to add anything?
2: Sure. I I think, you know, we, we complain a lot about polarization in our politics and, you know, just there, there's, there's being this huge divide. But I think we have we've allowed that to happen because it, it's the two groups kind of on the extremes that do all the advocacy. Right. That are that are out there, that are that are uh, in the in the ears of uh, politicians and things of that nature. I think uh, there was a, a study that said that called them either devoted conservatives who are, are kind of the, on the extreme right and uh, uh, progressive activists who are on the extreme left. And they are combined maybe 16%, uh, just over 16% of the population, but they control the narrative. They control mm-hmm. the culture war that we're all uh, have to be a part of because we're just not engaged. And so I think it's important for that, uh, those folks in the middle that, that uh, the, the folks who are kind of tired of, of how everything's going and want, and want to change that might vote, but don't get out and speak. Uh, it's time for them to, to speak up. Uh, don't underestimate how much it means for you to go to a city council meeting with just five people, uh, what, I mean, even five times, six times a year uh, for you to be sending a letter to your local representatives. I love, you know, I'm, I'm so thankful for the, the politicians that I know. I, I know a lot of great and committed politicians, but still at the end of the day, if I can be frank, politicians can be very scary. Again, they they want to stay in office. And so if you're in their face, if you're letting them know and and you don't have to be disrespectful. But if you're letting them know that you're watching them and you and that you have an agenda that you need pushed forward, they're eventually going to listen to you Uh, because if you're pushing hard enough, they'll listen. But you can't let the folks at the extremes control the conversation. That's really what's happening today. Uh, And so that's the that's the point that I would make is, again, join institutions. And keep that pressure on, so that they can. And, and sometimes the truth of the matter is, they want to hear from people who are who are not so extreme. They want you to be able to push back. A story that that I heard uh, John Lewis uh, tell was that when they first went to uh, LBJ for the Civil Rights Act, and they said, "Hey, man, we need you to pass this." He looked at him. He said, "Make me pass it. Make me go to the other side and tell them that I don't have a choice but to oh. pass it, or I'm gonna you know I'm gonna have a, a, you know, a real tough time. Make me do that." And that's how politics work. And so we really need to get past the idea. I don't care who the politician or candidate is that once we get somebody in office, we just leave. If we won and they're on our team, we just leave them to their own devices. That is not how politics work. That's the, that's the main way that you will have whatever movement or agenda that you are pushing. That's how you get it co-opted. Somebody's going to be pushing them. Somebody's going to be holding them accountable. And it needs to be you if you want to, if you want to um, um, impact
1: change. And that's a great point. And that's something I say all the time in, in my work and working with advocates across the country is the squeaky wheel gets the, the grease. You know, the more noise that you can make, to Justin's point, being up in the, the face of these politicians, um, you know, in a, federal, in a figurative sense, that is, you know, the better chance that you have of getting something passed and getting movement on your issue. Um, second thing I'll mention is I know that, you know, oftentimes people think Advocacy and civic engagement and talking to legislators is this big, scary process. And I tell people all the time, you don't have to know politics to get involved. You know your community. Consider yourself the community and your expert, or excuse me, the expert in your community um, these, particularly federal legislators, they spend most of their time in Washington, D.C. D. They're not in the, on the ground in your community. They don't know the unintended consequences of some of this bad legislation that they pass. You're the, the expert in your community. You know you know how things are, how policies are affecting stuff around you. Use that expertise to really make a change and really inform their work um, on the federal and state level. So think of yourself as, a, as the community expert. And don't be, I guess, intimidated by this sense that that politics, I don't know politics or I don't know enough to get involved. You you know a lot more than you think you do. That's helpful. We're gonna um I have one
0: more question and then we're gonna get into some of the questions that's coming in. Um, the comment section. Uh when we think about uh policy change and legislation change, what does that process look like usually from start to finish?
1: Hmm.
0: Either one of y'all wanna
1: um, say. It. <laughs> Um, I mean it's it's a long process if we're honest. And particular like I said, I mostly do federal policy. I do some state policy and have just ventured into uh local policy, but it's it's not it's not a short process by any means. And I don't say that to discourage people, but you know, to 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 add that you know organizing requires perseverance. Um but just a quick, you know, I guess government 101 is the process is, you know, there's it starts with you know conceptualizing policy. Um, elected officials, working with organizations, working with people in the community to really think about what a particular policy could look like. Um, and while something's being conceptualized, there's opportunities for uh, residents, for constituents to chime in and just provide anecdotes, provide stories of what's happening with, say, uh, policing in your community, um, also to provide data as uh, politicians are conceptualizing policy. From there, um it's introduced and you have to have a champion um, a champion to, to be able to introduce it. And what I mean by champion is someone who just, you know, it's their issue. They've decided to take it on. Once it get, gets introduced, um, it moves on to committee. Most bills, I will say on the federal level, at least I know it's the same on the state, never make it out of committee. There's just a lot of um, overlapping bills, you know, for whatever reason, bills just tend to sit stagnant. Um, once a bill is in committee, there, that's the opportunity to make amendments, to make changes as it relates to the bill, to um, testify before committees, um, bring in community voices so that other members of Congress can understand sort of how the bill was developed um, and get the full picture of the bill. If it passes committee, then it goes to a full, full vote in whatever body, whether it's the House or the Senate. Um, and then if it passes there, it obviously goes for... Uh, um, a signature from either the president or the, or the governor, um, but I said all that to say it's not a it's not a a short process by any means. Um, I mean, it can be a short process. It depends depends on um, exactly the urgency of the piece of legislation that's trying to be pushed. But there's an opportunity for people to chime in throughout the process. Uh, whether you are talking to a legislator about something that needs to be introduced at the front end when we're talking conceptualizing, or you're testifying in committee um, or on you know later in the process. There's just an opportunity to to chime in at any point in the process. And I just can't emphasize enough just how important it is for um, for constituent voices to be involved. Um, if a policy is going to pass that's going to influence you, it absolutely needs um, to hear how it could potentially impact your community, some of the data that goes into the policy and goes into sor- sort of some of the unintended consequences that could happen on the back end. Um, Justin, I'll kick it back over to you.
2: Yeah, I I think you hit it on the head. I mean, on the local and state level, it's just a kind of a a smaller version of of what you described. But one thing I would I would tell everybody is it is not a glamorous process, Uh, (laughs) It's not not a process that you're going to be able to take a whole, always be able to take a whole bunch of Instagram pictures for. Right. It's something that can be grueling. It's hard work. you got to look at the details. Um, You know, some of the most powerful people are the people who actually look at the details of of a bill. Sometimes we just look at the name of it and we say, oh okay, that sounds good. that, that should be good. That's not the case. We got to make sure that we're looking very closely and not everybody has the ex- expertise. again, this is where institutions come in too. but we got to make sure that, that we're paying attention. Uh, something that Vanna pointed to was uh, opportunities to speak about certain certain laws. Most states are going to have open meetings laws, meaning before that they, they can pass some before your city council, uh, before your uh, county commission can pass something, they have to give people an opportunity to speak. So their meetings have to be open and they have to have a a period of time where they allow citizens just to speak. And uh, you need to take advantage of that. You need to look at the agenda, see what's on it that you care about, do your research. And if you have something to say that's important, make sure that you're saying it because there are people I'm sure in your community who need you to speak up for them. And that's again, when we're talking about protests and all those other things, this isn't something that is as intense all the time but it's something that's just as important. There can be, you know, something could be about to pass through a, a city council and there could be one person who makes a compelling statement, a two minute statement that's, that, that they say, you know what, maybe we shouldn't pass that. Maybe we need to think t- twice. You know what, on second thought, I moved to hold this because this person stood up and said something that really made sense and could have a serious impact on the city. Those things happen. Uh, but we have to be devoted and we have to be willing to en- endure long periods of not seeing a whole lot happen. Uh, for instance, in, in Atlanta right now, I, I spoke a little earlier, we we're, we have something called City Roots ATL, where we are trying to make sure that the city uh, creates more low income uh, housing on city property. So the city owns all this property and we're saying, no, 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 don't sell the property. Use it to create uh, low income housing because there's a very serious low income housing crisis in major urban areas. So, for example, if you go to San Francisco, if you go to Seattle, these progressive uh, uh, cities, the only way that poor people can live in those cities is if they're living on the streets a lot of times. That's not okay. That's not what we want for our city. And so we went, for instance, we went up to City Hall. We participated in the the public comment. And one of the things that we were able to do was get them to put a moratorium on development until they had a plan to move forward on low-income housing. This was a group of people that said, we're, you know, we want to make we want to make things happen. And we actually went out and with other groups, we advocated for that and we saw some results. Now, that's not going to happen every day. And, and even some people in this organization have to say, hey, that's not going to happen all the time. There are some people that have been working for years that haven't had even that kind of win. So we have to be you know, consistent. We have to make sure that we're communicating. And one thing that I didn't mention was really reaching your base, making sure that you're getting to the people who this impacts and that they know what you're trying to do and that they're uh, as much as they can supporting you in one way or, or, or another, but do not underestimate how impactful you can be by just going to meetings on a consistent basis or whenever you can get to a meeting, you can have an impact on uh, processes that are gonna impact your community for years and years to come.
1: And, and I, um, I will say I had another point that I totally forgot what I was gonna say. Um, but in terms of just community voices, um, Justin, in addition to getting you know your voice as an as an organizer and or maybe someone who pays a little bit more attention to politics than you know just your average person, just finding ways to get um, as many community voices involved as pro- as possible, gathering stories from people in your community to share those with the legislator. Oh, that's what I was going to say. Is um, you know I know I keep bringing up federal policy, but don't uh, underestimate uh, district offices of your uh, federal representatives. All of them have district offices um, in their respective districts, if we're talking Congress, as well as across the state, if we're talking the Senate, but don't uh, underestimate those relationships with staffers in the district offices, Um, setting up meetings in those offices, maybe getting some guidance from staffers in those offices about um, what issues you know, your congressman or your senator cares about up in Washington, D.C.? So just building that local rapport um, is always something that I think people tend to underestimate when you talk about uh, impacting federal policy. So I just wanted to throw that out there.
0: That's so cool. Um Let's take a question from the comments. Uh, Angela says, is it going to show up here? She said, I signed a petition this week to stop the cho- to stop the use of chokeholds. Um, what's the next step after
1: a petition? I would say, Angela, is to whoever you sign, whoever the, I'm assuming that petition was going to the mayor. I would suggest you putting in a quick call to your mayor's office, just following up and letting them, them know that you were a part of that petition um, and asking uh, in general what the mayor can do about that or what next steps are in terms of addressing um, chokeholds being used. So that that's what I would recommend, number one, call. But secondly, this is something that I meant to mention earlier, Lisa, when we talk about tangible next steps, is I know that there's been a lot of talk about uh, Campaign Zero and the work that they're doing around police reform. Um, Their website is incredible. If you have not checked it out, um, you can simply enter your zip code uh, and they will give you a list of, um, they have a set of eight reforms that that they say if your mayor passes has a 72% chance or it can reduce police violence by 72%. I think that's the the statistic. If you go to their website and you put in your zip code, um, it'll list your mayor um, and how many of those eight reforms your, your city has implemented. If they haven't implemented them all, they will give you an email script or a call script, and they will direct you to send an email right then or there or call right then and there with their script. Just incredible and a very low lift way that you can advocate and get involved beyond The protest. So I did want to mention that, Angela, without you know going too far off base, but I would recommend you just follow up that petition with a phone call.
0: Awesome, Justin. Did you want to add anything?
2: No, I think she hit it. I think she she's right on that.
0: Okay. Um. Next question we have is, um, Erica asks, um, where can we find accurate voting statistics? that can help us target and galvanize our communities to vote and speak to our community leaders.
2: Accurate voting statistics. Um, I mean, it depends what what level, what the issue is. And so there's, there's, there are organizations, I mean, campaign zero may have some statistics out there, but you can kind of generally search different uh, research projects or, or different polls that have gone out to kind of see what, uh, you know, what voting looks like, how, how people in certain districts are voting. So what we do in any campaign that we're running, we're going to look at the district and we're going to look at how they voted. Now, you don't know how individuals voted, but overall you can see how people voted. Uh, you can also, you know, also conduct a poll. So we, we may send out a poll that says, how would you vote on, on this or that issue? And it gives you understanding of where, uh, where that particular district is on a certain issue. Um, I'm trying to, I hope I'm answering the question. But I think sometimes you just kind of have to look for it. And it depends on the issue. So you can get general data sometimes from your county as far as the voting goes. But on a particular issue, it just depends what the issue is. There may have been research or a poll done recently that you can pull up to give you an understanding of how people voted or how people feel on a certain issue.
1: Mm-hmm. Did you want to add anything, Vanna? No, I think um, I think Justin tackled it there. I think I was a little bit confused by the question if she was asking how legislators are voted, have voted, or um, how community members have voted. But I think Justin, hopefully Justin answered it. She, she can circle back if if she wants to rephrase it or has a follow up. Okay. Um, the next question comes from
0: Meredith. Um, she asks on a micro local level, what are the church's role in redeeming the hearts of law enforcement? Um, what about the cops in the congregation um should we be preaching moral courage to stand up against abusers in their ranks or should we be focused on the institution jesse you want to say a stab at that
2: oh definitely i think we should be focused on both Uh, i mean and i've seen churches do an excellent job of bringing in activists and bringing in police officers and again having a conversation having a town hall meeting and saying where are you guys with this one of the things that we have to understand about police officers, uh, uh, they're getting you know, we're giving them a hard time right now because some of them certainly deserve to be given a hard time. But it's not an easy job. And a lot of these folks got into it for the right reasons and are trying to do the best they can uh, in, a, in a job that's really tough and where you put your life on the line. And so one thing I would say is, you know, you can beat up on folks all day, but it could go a long way to encourage people for do- when they do something right as well. Right. And so sometimes you may just want to throw something at your church where you said, thank you for how you've treated this community. Uh, Thank you for for, for all that you did, all that you've done. And when something happens, maybe you do need to pull them in and have a town hall and have a panel where there's a very serious discussion about why things need to change um, and, and why, you know, you'll let the mayor know and you'll be there tomorrow and the day after if things don't change. So I think it's a little bit of, you know, a relationship, making sure that, where there is an opportunity to build a relationship, we do build those relationships and that we do say, hey, look, you have a, you have a very important responsibility because sometimes these police officers need to reset too and gain a little perspective. And church is an excellent place to do that. Uh, so I think we do have a, a obligation to have conversations about uh, speaking truth to power, about you know loving your neighbor, understanding the dignity of, of every person that uh, is in your community. Those conversations need to be had and people need to be held accountable, but also don't be afraid to encourage people to tell them when they've already done something well, because there are a lot of uh, police officers who are doing a very good job and they need to be recognized as well.
1: Vanda, do you want to add anything? Yeah. I mean, I think what Justin said um, is good. And, and I agree completely that, you know, the church is a place where communities come together, people from all walks of life, but I would just also encourage people to, um, as we talked about kind of at the top of the conversation is really see what's happened now when we talk about police violence and police brutality as the tip of the iceberg and really think about how the church can come together to address the root of the issue, which I think has a lot to do with just underinvestment in communities. When you look at you know, police um, departments as a whole and how they're funded and how much they're funded compared to say other efforts in the community, you know, community development, public health, the discrepancy is huge. And so I think when you're in a place like church where there's people from different walks of life and different professions to really having those conversations and seeking to understand the real core and the real heart of the issue, uh, which is just a lack of opportunity and underinvestment in communities um, that are really being over-policed. So just really bringing the full picture to the table and not focusing so much on what we see on the news and what's happening now, but getting to the heart of the matter. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things majority culture churches can do is use their
0: privilege because a lot of times they're already um, they they already know how the system works. Their friends are the elected officials. Um, They can get favors passed faster than we can. Um, And I think it's important that they use that privilege to push things through and to figure out like what is affecting those the minority communities and who can I talk to because there's resources um, that they have that that our community doesn't always have access to and they can get things pushed further. So it's not just about having the conversations or the town halls in our churches. It's like, how can you galvanize your power and your congregation and your influence and your friends and your favors to push legislation uh, through for those who might not have time to go to the meetings or might not have... um, Access to to certain things that you have access to, I think that's important uh, because I think a lot of times when we think about racial reconciliation conversations, um, we we're not thinking about how what tangible things can we do outside of lamenting.
1: Mm-hmm. Um,
0: we just want to lament, but it gets it doesn't get to legislation. And mm-hmm. uh, until we get, we can lament and we can try to get people to to change hearts but we need the legislation um, also in place while their heart is changing um, Mm -hmm. to help protect um, us in in these cases. Uh, Let's take another question. I think this is gonna be the last question. Um, How do Christians collectively work through local and state political parties to get things done without allowing the party to negatively influence our faith walk. Anybody want to, that's from Jaha. Anybody want to take a stab at that?
2: Yeah, sure. Uh, Jaha Howard is my, Dr. Jaha Howard is a, a good friend of mine. He's actually a, uh, a member of the Board of Education in Cobb County. Uh, so a very good brother, and I, I'd be happy to answer that question. You know, party parties present uh, um, an interesting uh, situation for Christians because I, you know, that's just the way our country has been set up. We've had a two party system since the beginning. And so I think it really is a reality, but I think Christians do have to start looking at parties differently. Um, you know, Parties to me are tools, right? They're, they're a tool that you use in the political process to get done what you're trying to get done. Uh, but I think what they've become to a lot of Christians and people outside of Christianity, what they've become to a lot of Christians is part of their identity, right? I mean, if you talk about somebody's party, uh, it's almost like you're talking about their mama, right? I mean, they, they get upset with you for talking about their party or, or their ideological tribe. And that's not to say that both parties are the same or they're, they're equal. It's just to say it should not be your identity because there's going to be certain uh, times, regardless of what party you affiliate with, that you're going to need to check your party. And if your party is part of your identity, you're going to be very hesitant to do that because you see everything they do as tied to you. Where the fact of the matter is you need to be able to step back and you need to be able to think critically about what your party does well and what your party doesn't do so well. So one of the things that I had as a Democrat, somebody who's been a Democrat all my life, I had to critique my party when it comes to uh, the housing crisis. And I had to understand that in a lot of these Democratic cities, big cities where, you know, some of these big names are, they have not served the poor when it comes to housing. They just not have, have not done a terrible job. Now I could I could if that's part if the party's part of my identity, I could deny that fact because I don't I want to make sure that we look good and I don't want my party to lose. But if I really care about the people, then I have to think about that differently. And I think with our current president uh, and all the folks that you know support and defend everything that he does, it's because they're defending something that they shouldn't that they shouldn't necessarily be defending. It's because they've placed kind of that partisanship and winning and beating progressives, over the witness, right? Uh, We always say with the AND campaign that you know I'm a strategist. I don't ever strategize to lose. But when in conflict, the Christian witness and what people see from me has to be more important than actually winning. And when we don't see that from Christians in politics, we end up with what we have today. Uh, And so I would say, as Christians, one of the main things we have to do, use your party as a tool. Participate. I participate in politics for over a decade, participate in it. That doesn't mean you have to agree with everything that's said in your party. Some people are really hesitant about it because like, well, if I'm a Democrat, what if I don't agree with this, this, and this, and this, then don't agree with it. And in fact, speak up on those things that you don't agree with, but you can still use it to your advantage to get things done. And so I think that's an excellent question by Dr. Howard. We really need to think of them as tools and be co-belligerent with non-believers in the party. There's some great work that can get done. With, uh, with folks who are non-believers in parties or in a certain movement, but go into those situations knowing who you are. A lot of times we get turned around and turned out because we get involved with a certain issue and we didn't come in understanding who we were first. Uh, what you stand on and what you stand for is gonna be almost important, if not more important, than the cause that you're pushing for because it sets the guidelines of what you will do and what you won't do what devices you will employ and what devices you won't employ. And before you get into politics, which some people call a blood sport, because it can be very uh, dangerous and and hurtful, you need to know who you are and be very secure in in your values as a Christian. Uh, And and sometimes that means you're going to have to go against your party vocally and that you may
0: lose some friends over it. Mm -hmm. Um, This has been a helpful time. I think a lot of the people, the comments I've seen have been seeing said it's been helpful to them. I know it's been helpful for me. Um, what will be your your final words to our audience, and what resources would you would you like to share with them as we close out? Um, I know Justin, you have uh, the end campaign just released um, some some things that a statement that gives a list of things um, that people can do going forward. Uh, so I'll let you go f- go first with that.
2: Yeah, well, first, thanks thanks again for having me, Lisa. Uh, Jude 3 always comes through with awesome content, and I appreciate uh, the opportunity to be a part of it. The first thing that I would say to Christians in conclusion is just uh, society needs you, needs to know where Christians stand on justice issues. Uh, Christians have to bear witness. And that's something that sometimes folks on social media, other folks on social media know better than the church does. We have to publicly apply the Christian ethic, and it's justice imperative to the issues at hand. So whether that means that you draft a statement like uh, the ANN campaign did, or that you just uh, endorse a statement uh, on the the matter, people need to know where you stand. And I, I would say that's particularly important for those of us who have a more conservative theology because fair or unfair, popular society, the narrative in popular society says that you don't care. And so we need to go out of our way to say, no, we absolutely do care. And I know from my faith tradition, we've shown over and over again, the compassion of Jesus Christ, that goes into everything we say, that it's not just about convictions and trying to correct other people. It's about loving your neighbor. And we need to make sure that people understand that. So I would first tell people to bear witness, make a statement so that people know that you are unambiguous about where you stand when it comes to justice issues. Uh, The other thing I would say again, make sure that you're part of institutions. You don't have to recreate the wheel on everything you don't have to do everything as an individual. Sometimes you need to be a part of an institution because that's the best way for strategic and sustainable action. Uh, engage your elected officials. And as, as Vanna said very well, know what you want. Have an agenda. Know what policies that you want to change. Uh, that's so important to have a long-term agenda and strategy as you move forward. I really am, am thankful as we talk about kind of partnering with other people. I'm thankful for the NAACP, they came out with a a great kind of list of things that needed to be changed when it comes to the issues that we've been dealing with recently. Uh, So uh, we talked about it earlier, having a ban on knee holds, having a ban on chokeholds, those things are are very important. Something else that they pointed out was modifying uh, the use of the force continuum so that there's, you know, when police are using force, there's a continuum and there's certain steps that they have to go through. They're saying that needs to be modified, that there needs to be at least six steps in relation to escalating a situation. Those things are important when we talk about policy, uh, police policy, and then also implementing citizens, citizen review boards. Uh, That's when, you know, whenever there's a complaint, it would go to the citizens review board. So it's not just looked at internally uh, by the police, that the citizens are actually having a say on how certain things should be handled. Uh, The city of Atlanta has that. A lot of cities don't have that. So those are just some things that we can push for, but know who you are and stand on what you believe and you have to speak truth to power. You have to bear witness. And if we continue to do that, if we have the endurance and the devotion to do that, uh, we'll go a long way in in making some changes.
1: Awesome. Zanna? I don't even know if I have anything to add. I feel like Justin, you know, we can drop the mic after he just, um, you know, just said his piece. But, you know, I think going back to, What I said at the beginning is just to, you know, equip yourself with information, with the knowledge that's out there. There's many organizations that are doing great work. Um, I mentioned earlier, Campaign Zero. Color of Change, Equal Justice Initiative. I know the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. All these organizations, great research, great work. Um, you know, follow them, like them, take their information and uh, disseminate it in your community. Um, but really, I think it's time for us now to find our second wind. You know, I, I grew up playing basketball, and you know, you're tired running up and down the court. You got to find that second wind in the second half to really win the game. And I think you know, with where we are now, we are protesting. We're out in the streets. We're exhausted, fatigued, and tired. But it's time for us to find our second win and press forward and really get that victory and, and and see it through and see through what this is all about. And that's ultimately reform at the back end. And I know uh Justin mentioned some great, you know, reforms that you know we're seeing being talked about across the country. I would add two other things that are I think are critically important that people haven't talked about enough. Um, I think one of them I mentioned earlier, and that's this issue of police funding. Uh, Louisville, Kentucky, I posted it on Facebook where um, Brianna Taylor was killed in her home. Their police, their city budget is about $675 million. Of that, about 180 something million. So 28% goes to the police. You know, we've just got to, when we talk about reform, I mean, I think, like I said before, that's the issue is that we're over policing and under uh, invested communities. So just uh, approaching it from a budget budgetary perspective. Um, and then the second thing, you know, these mayors out here as they are um, working through and negotiating union contracts, police union contracts, just um, having more individuals, more residents, raising their voices about those issues, I think are two critically important things that uh, folks could be advocating on going forward. Uh, but overall, like I said, let's find our second win, um, number one. And then secondly, people who have Uh, have been standing beside us expressing empathy for what's going on. Uh, Seek out some of these resources so that you can go from, you know, an empathizer to a really, you know, uh, an advocate for reform, uh, which is what we're going to need going forward. So that's all I would add. And I just thank everyone for tuning in. And I hope that this is, this conversation is really the beginning for a lot, a lot of work that's going to be done. Thank you. Thank you
0: both for being with us. Um, I think this was a, a very helpful time for those who are, watching, and I want you to all remember that justice is a commitment. Uh, We have to be committed to this fight. We have to see it through, and there are going to be days, like they mentioned, where it's going to seem like nothing is happening, Um, but there are going to be days when the movement is trending, but we have to keep the same energy throughout if we want to see real change in this nation. Uh, We have to move from just having racial reconciliation conversations where we just lament to actually saying, I'm going to be an advocate. I'm going to use my power. I'm going to use my privilege to get this systemic change um, in our country. So thank you all for tuning in to another episode of the Jew three project podcast. I uh, remember you could get our, um, our curriculum through eyes of color. You could donate, become a monthly partner, or you could take our online course all at Jew three project.org. Remember here at the Jew three project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it. God bless. And until next time, grace and peace. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Jew3 Project podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can tune in to all our past episodes at wwwjew 3 project